Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hello, Alex. How are you doing? Well, I'm all right. I'm on my travels. You are? You're on your way to Hay, I believe. And I'm on my way to Hay, where I will actually see you. Hooray, because we will do the podcast IRL, as I believe the youth say. Yeah, we'll be IRL with our colleague Toby Lichtig. Yeah, which is going to be tremendous. And I think you've made a kind of super signing. Well, well I, I, I can't take any credit for it. But what is brilliant is that we are going to talk to Lise Doucette, the frankly amazing um, BBC correspondent who, um, well, until very recently, she's been right in the thick of it in Ukraine. It turns out she's also incredibly well read um, and, uh, you know, thoughtful about fiction and literature and all sorts of things. So that will be a real treat. Well, I'm hugely looking forward to it. I will see you. I'm I, having, being a little bit of a veteran of Hay, I say Pat Wellies. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. The first time I ever went to Hay, I took a, because I was rather in the sort of mode of what it might be like, I took a sort of white floaty linen dress and I had to buy a pea green fleece. <laughs> um, however, it might be lovely. I understand, you know, it's the Jubilee weekend. This is all sort of building up to, isn't it? So probably it's. It has to, the sun probably has to shine constitutionally. I imagine, over the whole realm. From Hay and our IRL uh, meeting to a lovely letter that I think you've had from from our correspondence bag. It's a wonderful letter. And um, first of all, saying thank you for giving out the email because I've been looking for it, but I can't find it. So I just must apologise first that it's taken however long it's taken for us to remember to give you a an email address to write to us at. So the letter is from Hebe. I think you say Hebe or Hebe. I'm, I'm going to go for Hebe and I apologise if it's wrong. It's just the most lovely letter um, being very, saying that, um, that she likes the podcast and been listening for a long time. And actually this, which I would really like to use for our marketing, Hebe, if you don't mind, she says, you always make me smile and think. I mean, I think that's job done yeah. then. Perhaps we should now just retire. Yeah, yeah. I mean, or, or we could carry on. No, I think we should, <laughs> should chase more praise. That's what I think. No, I think <laughs> never rest our laurels. Unashamedly. Let's make more people think and smile. Well, it's such a lovely thing to say, isn't it? A lovely thing to say. It's exactly the effect that, that you know, we'd like the podcast to have completely. And she won't be able to make it to the live podcast at Hey and Why. Is there any chance of live streaming it? I think it is going to be live streamed or any further special episode. There will be a way that it goes beyond uh, the, the, the muddy tent, I promise. Yes, exactly. And, and there will, so, we, so it should be available and also further special episodes should also be available. 
She then also says, lots of people are doing videos now. How about doing a bit of video and, and when maybe we could see a bit of the fabled TLS offices if you were to do a video podcast? I'm not sure about that one. Um, <laughs> well... <laughs> not sure the fabled TLS offices would live up to No, it. I think that's sort of imagining perhaps a kind of literary gormenghast. Yeah, it's a, the office is in the middle of a, of a volcano, so it's difficult to um, get a good <laughs> recording quality. That's, that's the start. And the waterfall is very loud. So we'll take that one on board, but we'll have a think about that one. Um, but the other brilliant suggestion, and this is a really brilliant suggestion, is suggesting that we set up some sort of challenge for our listeners, just a, like a little thing, suggests buying a secondhand book or reading some poetry. That's a great idea. Um, and then we might, you know, if people told us about it, then we'd, we'd have a sort of, well, we'd have a little gang and we'd like to have a little gang. We'll start with one of Hebe's challenges. And I, I suppose because we are, you and I, going to Hay and Hay is going and is known for, uh, you know, secondhand books. It is, it, you know, that is its essence. Shall we, shall we say that, you know, go and find a secondhand Let's book. Let's do it. And tell us about, you know, obviously we love a kind of, recherche find we'd love to hear about those um it's also always you know my, my i always think i'm going to find you know first edition of ulysses under a sort of pile of national geographics i never do but you know mm. if, if we can do a sort of antiques roadshow all to the good don't you think <laughs> yes <laughs> also i have to say we love a bargain so if you pick up a brilliant yeah. book for 10p yeah send it to us wonderful and it doesn't have to be it can be anything i mean it could be um it could be Topsy and Tim, which again is is a great work of literature. I'm not saying it isn't. I have to say I have I've immediately sort of swerved this into a kind of mercantilist project, but actually we are saying <laughs> do find something <laughs> something you like to read, yeah. something that you like to read and tell us about it. Uh, right, I move on uh, before I just become ever more vulgar. Coming up on this week's show. We are joined by Lucy Hughes-Hallett to talk about the rise, the fall and the legacy of Italian fascism. And we look back at the tragicomic phase of that great institution, British reign. But first, what sparked the rise of Mussolini in Italy and how did it happen so quickly? Why, two decades later, did it collapse just as suddenly? And what has been the impact on successive generations of Italians? Lucy Hughes-Hallett, the prize-winning biographer of Gabriele D'Annunzio, has reviewed two books about Mussolini's Italy and joins us now to ponder these and other intractable issues. Lucy, many thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. It's good to be here. Let's start with the first book that you look at, uh, John Foote's Blood and Power. And we should mention that John Foote has political pedigree and also personal pedigree when he comes to write this book. Absolutely, yes. So he's, uh, he's from a great um, Labour clan. His, um, his great uncle was Michael Foote, leader of the Labour Party. His father was Paul Foote, the uh, campaigning journalist, supporter of the Socialist Workers' Party. So John Foote comes from the left, but he opens his, his book with a reminiscence of a family occasion. Apparently, all the Foot family used to collect for big holidays in Cornwall. And his great-grandmother, his Italian great-grandmother, Aurelia, would also be present. And uh, Paul Foot told his son John that it was a kind of refrain of these, uh, these probably very argumentative, um, politically engaged dinner party conversation or other family dinner conversations that somebody would say oh you know so and so is a fascist and then great grandmother Aurelia would speak up and say oh fascism wasn't it wonderful (laughs) (laughs) that must have that must have caused a bit of a stir particularly around that family can you imagine you just feel that you know H.M. Bateman I mean it's just a moment when everyone would have been Frozen, although I suppose... Maybe they were used to it. They were used to it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, of course, then John Foote goes on from there to to engage with the fact that, of course, I mean, fascism lasted in Italy for over two decades with the consent of the population. And obviously there the were opponents and those people who were brave enough to speak up against the fascist regime were very brutally silenced. Um, but the fact is that 
you know, a large proportion of the Italian nation was complicit or anyway cowed into apparent complicity by the regime. And Foote gives us the kind of historical context for that, the very chaotic and frightening situation in Italy in the years immediately after the end of the First World War. And there were a lot of people from the sort of the liberal establishment mm. who thought that these black-shirted, uh, rather noisy, but apparently so irresponsible people that, you know, there was no reason to suppose that they would ever achieve proper political power. They could be used basically to, uh, as kind of, um, uh, as, as kind of vigilantes, as um, a bit of useful muscle to control the socialists who seemed by far more likely to take over everyone, I think, in 1919, 1920. If there was going to be a sudden political change in Italy, they would have expected it to be a socialist communist revolution mm. rather than what eventually happened. And they, and they feared that, um, it, it seems, because they were looking at the example of Russia, and certainly that was what was... Uh, you know, motivating someone like Paul Foote's great grandmother in her admiration for fascism. It was it was a sort of bulwark against uh, communism and what had happened elsewhere. Is that is that right? Yes, absolutely. And it was beginning to happen in Italy. I mean, I think in I think it was 1920 that Trotsky sort of told the assembled Soviets uh, that you know we have Italy, you know our fellow socialists, fellow communists, are on the brink of taking over the Italian state. And there was a brief period when that really did look likely. There were general strikes, there were workers occupying the factories, and the, those factories became fortresses, very heavily armed. There were sort of arsenals full of, of weaponry in those occupied factories. The, you know, the, the idea that there might be uh, a communist revolution wasn't just a kind of, you know, the kind of paranoid fantasy that one saw in, in the United States of America a couple of decades later. It really might have happened, but it didn't happen, mainly because um, that there was no proper organisation. You know, there was a lot of spontaneous action, but it wasn't centralised. There wasn't a re uh, an effective leader. And and there were some very powerful people who were opposed to it, mainly the people with the money. And, and Mussolini kind of comes into this, this gap. He suddenly decided that, uh, well, there is, of course, a longer process behind it, but it seemed sudden to everyone around him that, no, on the other hand, he was pro-war and he was going to celebrate militarism. He was beginning to talk in the kind of way that, with hindsight, we can see was, was fascist or proto-fascist. And then by the end of the, of the First World War, um, when Italy was in a pretty desperate state, mm. um, although it had fought on the winning side with the Allies, it had experienced defeat in the year before the war ended, there had been the absolute disaster of Caporetto when the Italians were driven back. Uh, you know, you could hear the Austrian guns in Venice. It, 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 was, it was pretty desperate. And only in the last few months, really weeks of the war, did the Italians rally. But so a lot of people had deserted. There were a lot of soldiers who were kind of uh, living, living in hiding, or ex-soldiers. And... Um, by the end of the war. And apart from those deserters, the soldiers who had fought to the end and who were returning were returning very angry. They felt that they were not being given their share, which was absolutely true. And the other allies, you know, if you read their letters and diaries of the people who were taking part in the talks at Versailles, the French, the Americans, the, uh, the British, it's it's disgraceful the way they talk about the Italians. You know, there's a lot of ghastly jokes about ice cream sellers. And the Italians had fought very bravely. They'd suffered terrible losses. I mean, the Italian front was every bit as, um, as sort of 
bloody and, and deathly as the Western Front, about which we in Britain know so much more, with the only difference being that the Italians were fighting uphill, or rather sort of up mountain, in the mountains on the Austrian border, and in deep snow. I mean, it was, it was a, a terrible, terrible war for them. And having suffered all that, then to find that they just weren't going to be given what they saw as their share of conquered territory or financial support was very bitter. So that anyone who'd been in the Italian military, whether they'd fought through to the end or deserted after Caporetto, was feeling extremely um, disgruntled, dispossessed and outcast. And also it seems from, from the way that you're describing it also despised, you know, not not merely just not getting, you know, a, a fair share of things, but also treated with contempt. And I, I wonder if that, you know, also explains some of the emotional appeals of fascism and of course of, of Hitler's appeals to his uh, country people too. There is this emotional appeal, isn't there, that you, you you can rise again at the sort of invocation of the past and the idea that you you can be respected and must be respected. That's a very important point. And Mussolini offered that. Um, you know, he called the returning soldiers the trenchocracy. And these, you know, rather desperate men uh, were given a kind of a kind of language or a sort of a, a symbolic code with it in which they could feel that they that they were heroes that you know, they were valued and that translated into violence you know they became the, the squadristi the, the violent gangs who in the kind of immediate post-war years um, under Mussolini's influence eventually, but actually they, you know, they, they existed really before Mussolini seized control of them. And they they felt that as long as they were, you know, wearing their black shirts and roaring around the countryside in their stolen jeeps, terrorizing socialists or people who they considered might be socialist, they felt a kind of self-respect that they had lost. Mm-hmm. It's interesting as well that, that you say that the the kind of let's say the center or even the center left the the, the liberal um democracy was 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 kind of using them they were quite useful for them and they just thought oh well we we don't need to worry about them we'll use them to enforce kind of the less palatable things and then they just assumed that that they themselves would continue to rule is that right yes absolutely so it began really with people hiring the squadristi as sort of enforcers so landowners who were faced with peasant uprisings would you know summon in the local the local black shirts to put down the uprising and and then on a much bigger political stage the sort of the great the grand old man of Italian politics was Giovanni Giolitti who'd been prime minister five times and he made the terrible mistake of he was forming a coalition government and he asked Mussolini and his followers to join this coalition. And it had never occurred to Giolitti or to any of his um, sort of patrician colleagues in the Chamber of Deputies that the fascists would really have any kind, could, could seize any kind of power because they seemed so rude and crude. But very quickly, of course, they did. And so Giolitti had invited them in. And then once they were in the chamber, it became impossible to control them. You also make the point that John Foote's book is really powered by the stories of the Italian people. He collects people's stories, doesn't he? Um, I wonder if you could share some of those. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is not a book about, um, you know, the movers and shakers. Indeed, Mussolini plays a comparatively small role in it. It's about what it was like to live under fascism. And so um, the whole book is is a kind of mosaic of, of small stories, which collectively form a bigger picture. And so we have stories about perhaps a a local mayor being terrorised by, first by communists and then by fascists. Mm. We have stories about um, just ordinary people, men, women, people living in small towns and villages and their experience of this thuggery, which 
would suddenly overtake these these communities. Um, there are stories about um, Jewish people, including those who were proud to serve the fascist government, uh, who but who then found that as the sort of anti-Semitism gradually became a part of the fascist program, which only happened slowly, but um, it's it's very often uh, thought or said that fascism only really became anti-Semitic after Mussolini and Hitler had formed the Pact of Steel. But uh, Foot shows that actually it was inherent in fascism from quite early on. And then so gradually there's, there's Jewish people who had you know, been, been officials under the fascist government and were perfectly happy to serve it, suddenly found that they were losing their jobs, their children were no longer allowed to go to their schools, and eventually many of them were deported to the camps. But I'm generalising, but Foote is particular. He focuses <clears throat> always on, on individual people or individual families, and that gives his, his book a, a wonderful uh, vividness and immediacy talked a bit about the, the, the rise, the, the apparently sudden rise and the apparently sudden fall uh, of fascism and, and of Mussolini that ends, you know, eventually with with his very, his vilification and his very sort of, uh, well, bloodthirsty death. Um, but do you see through these mosaics that it was actually a more gradual process of disenchantment? Um, did it have to do with people who had thought that fascism would serve them and then it just and then realized it just didn't? Um, yes, it's partly that. It's partly how much fascism was initially underestimated, both by those in power and um, you know and, and by ordinary Italians in the street. Mm. Um, but I think that, I mean, it, it, it is phenomenal how quickly Mussolini went from, I think there were 120 people at the meeting in the Piazza San Sepulcro in, in Milan, which is seen as being kind of, you know, the, the birthplace of fascism. And in you know, just over a couple of years, suddenly it was a nationwide movement capable of, of taking over government. And how that happened is not entirely explicable, I think. And I think, and that's true also of a, a great many revolutions. I mean, you know, a few people in the Winter Palace with one typewriter. Mussolini, um, he wasn't particularly keen on democracy, but he knew how to work it. And that the old way of doing politics was um, very powerful people talking to each other behind closed doors. Whereas Mussolini knew how to turn out towards the public and to turn politics into theater. And that, of course, is the way politics is now done. But um, really in fascist Italy, it was the first time we saw it being done really effectively. And Mussolini was, was brilliant at that. You know, the black shirts, the, the salutes, the, the songs, um, all of which incidentally originated with in Fiume when Gabriele D'Annunzio took over Fiume just after the war in 1919 and set up a, a, a kind of, as it were, a, a miniature proto-fascist state, which was uh, terrifically theatrical. And Mussolini learned from that. He visited Fiume under D'Annunzio. And he and he saw and he took away the importance of engaging with your public, your constituency, as though it was the audience in a theatre. And it worked. And then it just went. Suddenly the, the, the trick stopped working. Well, um, of course, the fact that Italy was was losing a war had a lot to do mm. with that. Mm. I mean, you know, a, a defeated leader is always going to be at a, a bit of a disadvantage. But but um, but yes, it wasn't the anti-fascists who, who did for Mussolini in the end. It was his own people, his most intimate supporters, mm. including, of course, his son-in-law, Gianno. Um, and at a meeting of the Grand Consiglio, the great, the Grand Council, which he had set up as his own personal instrument of power, uh, he suddenly, and it was sudden to him, I think he really hadn't expected it, 
found that he had lost his support. They wanted to get rid of him and they voted him out. And he was arrested and then um, taken off to, to a place from which he was subsequently released by Germans. And then he had his, you know, his second bite of power during the extraordinary Republic of Salo uh, before the, the, the final end when he was captured by partisans, killed, and as we all know, you know, that terrible image of him being strung up by his feet from the canopy over a petrol station on the outskirts of Milan. But uh, the thing about Foot's book really is that it's not particularly about the rise and fall of Mussolini, although that is such a, a compelling story. It is much more about the experience of living under that kind of a regime. And a point that he makes very powerfully is the extent to which anyone living in those circumstances somehow becomes complicit. And that's not in any way to blame Italians. I mean, I, I'm sure I'd have tried to keep my head down and, and keep out of harm's way, just as most of them did. But um, that is, he tells chilling stories about moments when, for instance, you know, some, some fascist thugs were roughing up people on the street and other people just walked on by. I mean, wouldn't you? You walk yes. on by. Yes, just out of terror, presumably, just simply thinking I need to get myself away from this situation or I will become a victim too. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Um, I wonder if we could just just move on to the other book that you you talked about, very provocatively titled book. Uh, Mussolini also did a lot of good by Francesco Filippi, uh, translated by John Irving. We should probably immediately point out that this is an ironic title. <laughs> yes. 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 Um, in Italian, it's called. Actually, no, I don't know. I'm not sure. But it's uh, it's a little bit clearer, I think, that um, Mussolini also did did a lot of good. It, it sure ends up, comma, not. <laughs> <laughs> He's, he, but but it, I suppose it's, it's, it's a book that, you know, it, it's titled at face value would be something that great grandmother Aurelia would would sort of nod approvingly of. But then what <laughs> he's really talking about is that that subject of sort of historical amnesia and and the kind of what about ism I suppose the kind of you know well this happened but the the, the absolute famous cliche that the trains ran on time the so-called achievements of Italian fascism in his in his view I think don't stack up they don't bear close examination that's right I mean both Filippi and and Foote actually are challenging what they see as a kind of creeping sympathy or acceptance anyway of of fascism a sense that you know as, as his title says it wasn't all bad and Philippi gives us he, he basically counters all the arguments what he calls the idiocies um, that are he says becoming increasingly current in modern Italy and so he will say you know so people say oh, yes, fascism was awful, but actually they introduced age old, old age pensions. They were very good on taking care of, you know, the poor and the weak. And then Philippi comes up with statistics saying, no, no, you know, actually old age pensions were introduced in the 1890s under Francesco Crispi. And so he's just got, he's got a, an answer to every one of these arguments. It's as though... This will be a handbook for you if you were having to talk to John Foote's uh, great-grandmother, Aurelia. And she was saying, oh, but, you know, uh, Mussolini challenged the mafia. And then you could get out Philippi's book and say, well, no, that's not true. You know, the, the fascists were as disrespectful of the law as the mafia is. And no, they weren't actually. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Um, the people who are upholding law and order. Is it um, that you could that you could certainly challenge great grandmother Aurelia whether she would thank you for it? I don't know, but is, <laughs> does he? Does he? Is there also a sense that that it might be needed to challenge people's sort of assumptions today? That's exactly right. Both these authors are saying that they are alarmed by the sense that the horror and disapproval that surrounded the idea of the fascist regime in the immediate post-fascist years is beginning to wear off and people are beginning to say well it wasn't so bad really and they need to be reminded that actually yes it was. And I I wonder does he also make a a sort of wider point about historical amnesia you know and this idea that you know we we can look and say well you know we haven't had fascism in the UK in the same way in the same way it hasn't had ascendancy but one is still just as much prone, whichever kind of uh, political establishment one has grown up in, with this kind of, you know, these rose-tinted spectacles in a way. Definitely, yes. Uh, rose-tinted spectacles and also a difficulty that everyone, I, I think, in you know, unwelcome his, in historical circumstances finds. It's hard to know exactly when you say thus far and no further, this is the moment to say no. And you're absolutely right that both these books describe something that happened in Italy, but they're describing it in order to warn that it could happen elsewhere as well. Mm. Lucy, thank you so much for for talking us through those books. They sound really fascinating and actually very complementary to one another. That's true. Yes. Well, thank you for letting me talk. And of course, we will not forget to to mention your your own book, uh, which, again, would probably make a great trio if somebody wanted to get a proper primer. Uh, So if you read these two books in conjunction with The Pike, you'd be doing quite well. Still to come on the show... We asked the important question, were British Rail sandwiches really terrible? And what about the troubled history of BR's nationalisation? And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode.
Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. What do you think might link, however tenuously, sandwiches, buses, the common carrier, chamber pots and the Johns Lennon and Major? It's an impossible question, really. You'd have had to read the book we're talking about to answer. And the answer is, surprisingly, British Rail. Andrew Martin is reviewing a book about what he calls the tragicomic phase of its nationalisation, and he joins us now to talk it through. Andrew, many thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, So the book you're reviewing is called British Rail, A New History by Christian Walmar. It is about the railway, but it's also, it seems to be also about British history and politics and geography and business and all sorts of things, isn't it, really? Well, in a way, it's... it's, um... It's about the most interesting period of Britain's railways, namely British Rail or British Railways, as it started out being called, and the nationalised incarnation of our railways. And the basic story is of how, having nationalised the railway, we didn't know what to do with it. The difficulty with the railway is that it provides a very elemental thing. It provides movement, and movement is necessary for almost every other activity in our society. Mm. So surely you should give it the support, this enterprise, the support it needs. It's like it provides air, yeah. but um, it never got that support. And constantly undermined by the Treasury wanting to cut back the funding. And according to Christian Walmart... um, uh, it was persistently subsidised at a much lower level than the nationalised railways of our European competitors. Um, so that's why I call it tragicomic. There would be bursts of enthusiasm. And suddenly there'd be a kind of investment plan. In particular, there was the very ambitious modernisation plan of 1955, uh, which Walmart calls back of the envelope stuff. <laughs> uh, it was developed very quickly and there were strange proposals for things like helicopter landing pads to be incorporated in railway stations. That would be exciting, um, wouldn't it? Well, it has lots of exciting mm. ideas. Marshalling yards, great big um, uh, distribution points where freight would be, trains would be shuffled about so that um, wagons would be distributed into different trains and set off different corners of the country. There was one near me in York where I grew up and you could hear it rattling away all night. Um, they fizzled out pretty quickly as well. Um, there were some good things that emerged out of the modernization plan, uh, like the electrification of the West Coast Main Line. I think that's where that originated. Uh, but lots of eccentric things that um, that didn't persist. And this was the story over and over again. Stop, go. Enthusiasm, then cutbacks. Enthusiasm, then cutbacks. And persistently low subsidy, because we as a nation just seem to be prejudiced against our railway. Didn't believe in it. Mm. Thought it was old-fashioned. Mm. Hence, the, when we do when we do go abroad and use another train, we're still just surprised and amazed at how great everybody else's generally, trains are. Yeah, you're generally awestruck. Yeah. I mean, even in France. <laughs> And the SNCF in France, its reputation has taken a bit of a knock recently. In fact, I'm part of an organisation, I sometimes go along to their meetings, they were called the SNCF Society, but then now they've just called themselves the French Railway Society because, as I say, SNCF hasn't been doing so well recently and it's been cutting back itself. But generally speaking, if you go on a high-speed train in France, it's just sheer luxury, sheer bliss. I I managed to do that during a gap in lockdown, went to Nice from Paris. It was the highlight of my holiday, even when I had a nice deep meet, but the train was the You best. are fond of trains, mind you. Yeah. But everyone's everyone's fond of those trains. Yes. Uh, yeah. You're sitting in what is essentially an armchair, often if you like on the second yes, floor. Yes, that's the know, thing I love. They're like double deckers. That's so exciting. It's just like a it's like a rocket. Um uh, and, and so smooth and a nice buffet car. Um, so we invented trains, but somehow we've never really believed in them. And what we did believe in very strongly was the motor car. And because that seemed to symbolise freedom to us, you know, we're a sort of anti-state society. I can't remember what the right word is, but we're we're a laissez. We built our railways by laissez-faire, by which I mean chaotically, um, with lots of duplication. And we don't believe in state enterprises. And that was the basic problem for BR all the time, car use increasing very rapidly. Yeah, and people had a real liking for cars and uh, didn't like the trains. Trains were the past. Can you tell us along those lines? I wanted to ask you about, as you say, it did face lots of stiff opposition from some unlikely areas. Tell us about the Railway Conversion League. 
this was um, a group of nutty ex-army men, I think. Um, that's how Walmart characterizes them. A couple of army officers sort of founded this this uh, organization, and it believed that all the railways should be torn up and replaced with roads. <laughs> and um, you would have a succession of high-speed coaches, buses, instead of trains. And um, um, this, uh, my dad, who worked for BR uh, in sort of the finance side of it, was at the mercy of a, of a rail replacement uh, eccentric in the, in the shape of my uncle Peter, who was his brother-in-law. Uncle Peter, d- Peter did not like my dad and he would come to the house and he was a big car man himself and he drove a nice car and he would come into the house wearing his car coat and he would take his ca- uh, driving gloves off. But that's about as far as it went. His, his, his catchphrase was, not stopping, Bill. <laughs> well, unlike your so-called railways, that sort of thing. <laughs> my uncle Peter promoted this uh, rail replacement scheme. And my dad rebutted it one day. He said, well, OK, Peter, so you have all these fast coaches. Presumably you sort of straighten all the roads out and have um, um, very efficient road network. He said, yes, that would be part of the plan as well. We'd use the main motorways and build more motorways. And my dad said, and the buses would run in quick succession, right? And Uncle Peter said, yes, that's right. They'd be almost sequential, one after another very quickly. So you'd hardly have to wait for, for a bus. And my dad said, OK, so you've got a series of um, of buses running in a straight line, very close together. Peter, that's called a train. <laughs> and um, I thought I thought that was my dad being genius. But in fact, uh, it's revealed in Walmart's book that this, this rebuttal uh, was, in fact, the work of Richard Marsh, one of the BR chairmen's. That chairman, that's how he uh, argued against. Um, so it was his um, it was his neat conceit. Well, it is a very good rebuttal, whoever it comes from. And it, so 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 the, the thing is that they wanted a rail replacement bus, but forever. Imagine that. Imagine the horror of the of the whole transport system being the rail replacement bus. The low point for BR was Dr. Beeching, who um, I, I often mention in print, and then quite often sub-editors and people like that come back to me and say, our younger readers are not going to know who this mm. is. Um, but so just to explain, you know, he, he was the chairman of BR in the early 60s, and he implemented a cutback plan whereby he, he cut the network by a third. And um, at the behest of uh, Ernie Marples, who was the transport minister at the time, very much a car man and a real sort of caddish figure uh, known for wearing brown suits, uh, <laughs> blue suits and brown shoes. Um, and um, he um, found trains boring. This is the transport minister. This was the transport secretary. Yeah. And he appointed Dr Beeching, who had been the head of ICI, a scientist and quite deliberately a scientist, not a, not a railway man. So a calculated insult to the injury. Uh, to the industry and Beeching came along and cut it by a third and what strikes me about Beeching is the sheer wrongness of it of what he did uh, as as Walmart says the pursuit of the subsidy he did it purely to cut finance uh, to save money mm. and as Walmart says the pursuit of the subsidy free railway was a holy grail that could never be found and it never was found and Beeching's cuts made very little difference apparently to the BR need for subsidy but they cut whole towns out of the life of Britain. I mm. mean, Walmart mentions Louth, I think that's how you pronounce it, in, in Lincolnshire, a town that he'd been to as a boy and very much liked. And then he revisited it later on after it had lost its railway, which he'd lost because of Beach. And he thought, what a nice place this is with a lovely old cathedral and charming Georgian streets. And he, he reflects in the book on how it could have been a major tourist destination if only people could get there on public transport. Mm. And my, my equivalent of Louth was Whitby growing up in York. You, there was still a railway line to Whitby from York, but you had to, thanks to Dr. Beeching, you had to go via Middlesbrough and it took about four hours. It takes a long time to get there, yeah. Almost wherever you're from, it takes a long time. I hardly ever went to Whitby from York, and that's because of Dr. Beach. And every time we did go to Whitby, we loved it. And I, okay, mm-hmm. it, so it missed out on my pocket money for, for year after year, not very much, admittedly, but multiply that by a million times and, and Whitby mm. out big time because of Beeching and many, many towns did. And then by any modern criterion, what he did was a disaster from the health and safety point of view. All the people who died because he turfed them onto the roads. It didn't wear seatbelts. Well, seatbelts weren't compulsory, were they? No, no seatbelts and you could drive drunk and everything. So how many people died because of Dr Beeching? I mean, that's not, well, it doesn't try to quantify that, but I mean, I'd be interested to know that. And then health and, so health and safety and then the, the environmental perspective. It, it was a disaster from that point of view. I mean, we would be a totally different nation, wouldn't we? It would be an entirely different nation had Beachy not come along. 
whole towns would have different identities, population. You know, we, it may be that we wouldn't have so much antipathy towards major population centres from people who don't live in them and find themselves frustrated because they simply can't get anywhere. Yes, I think I think Britain would have been very different. I think it would have been a more civilised place. Um, and now it's impossible to close a railway line. And quite a few, I don't know the exact mileage, but quite a few of the of the railways closed by Beeching um, have been reopened. So this is again proof that he he was wrong. Um, but um, what he did seems just inconceivable from from the environmentalist point of view. And people often sort of um, exonerate Beeching. Well, they're on two counts: one, only obeying orders. But he was very enthusiastic about cutting the railways. He wasn't just obeying orders. And uh, then the other one, well, he didn't have a crystal ball. So couldn't see that towns would be overwhelmed with car congestion, pollution and noise blight. Again, it's not, I don't think this is in Walmart's book, but other people did have a crystal ball. One of them was John Betjeman. And he persistently mm. opposed everything that Beeching did. He said Beeching is making this country much more unpleasant because of car congestion, because of noise, psychological effects of all that. It's also, as you say, because it was about numbers, there does seem to have been no no thought about the geography or the local history or the fact that, as you say, you were cutting off um, uh, whole sections of people from essentially the kind of life of the nation almost. There was no thought for the social benefits of railways. That was not taken into account at all. And um, then slowly that idea was introduced and it was legislated into being uh, by Barbara Castle, who was a Labour transport minister in, I think, well, the late 60s. And she recognised the social value of railways. And that's about when the beaching closures came to an end. Although his closure programme was implemented in full. So the idea of a social railway came along a bit too late. Mm. And even after it was, the notion was, was created it, it remained a rather vague notion and people continued to want to cut people involved in BR still wanted to cut lines after beaching the idea never quite went away of the virtue of, of simply cutting lines but there was the slow development of the idea of a social railway and now that idea is pretty strong and that's why you can't close a railway line today mm-hmm. um, there are all sorts of ideas that beaching had about how people would use transport uh their railway having been cut and and these were just wrong one was bustitution you know that there would be a bus what a horrible word <laughs> the bus is a horrible word that gives you an idea of the sort of merit of it doesn't it but oh. uh the buses tended to disappear somebody somebody i think possibly marina hyde in the guardian it's attributed to different people but said the most depressing words in the english language are um rail replacement bus service mm, yeah yeah um, but uh, that one, his other idea was that people would uh, drive. Yes, they would take their car to the nearest railhead, and then they would do, i.e., to the big line, and then they would travel on on the train once they'd driven to the to the to the main line. Where would they park? <laughs> they, well, they, they just drove all the way in practice, you know. So that was an, another notion of his that was wrong. But Beeching is uh, given some credit by Walmart. I think it's very interesting. Uh, apparently, Beeching, who was not an aesthetic man to look at but he was very important in the sort of design revolution that was involved in br and i don't think i'd given that proper credit uh, i'm never much like the trains of the 70s that kind of mid blue called rail blue but walmart talks that up and says that was a very clever idea that color and he convinced me that it was all quite beautiful really and he puts br's design on a par with the design of London transport in the 1930s, you know, Harry Beck's map and all the beautiful tiling in the stations and signage and all the posters and how elegant that all was. And he makes a strong case that BR was just as good. And he says the design manual for BR was regarded as the classic. And uh, at the end papers of his book, which is very handsomely produced, there's examples of BR typefaces and it does, it all looks great actually. And so that's something Beeching did that was, that was commendable, I suppose. Right. Well, that's very even-handed to... <laughs> to he was still a rotter. To, to give him kudos for that. Um, I mean, it did work, as you say. It was all very stop-start, wasn't it? But there, there was about a decade 
in which it, it, it prospered and worked. And then suddenly it was um, it was John Major came along. Is that right? Yeah, John Major needed his own privatisation scheme. And um, I said in my review, kind of summarising what I think Walmart says, which is that for Thatcher, the BR brought out the pragmatist, even in Margaret Thatcher. Uh, she, she knew that it would be a difficult privatisation because the railway would continue to need subsidy. Um, but John Major just ploughed on with it and won an election he wasn't expected to win. So in a way, the privatisation happened sort of by accident. Um and um, but the last decade of BR, according to Walmart, was its golden period, and there were two chairmen called Bob Reed. One after another. One after another. I think. That's very confusing. Well, doubly confusing because their initials were BR. Um, <laughs> of but, course. Uh, Maybe that's why they got the job. No, because they, they were good. Bob, well, but the first—they're both good, apparently. But the first Bob Reed brought out a change in the management structure, which is very dry uh, stuff, but it's briskly explained by Walmart, and it makes it pretty interesting. A thing called sectorization, where the railway was reorganised into the different jobs that it had to do, rather than on a regional basis, which had been its basic, the principle of its organisation before that. And when it had been organised on a on more of a regional basis, there had been rivalries between the different uh, regions mm. because they had previously been different railways. And the Western region inherited all the arrogance of the Great Western Railway, okay. which was a maverick outfit, did everything differently to everybody else, signalled the wrong way and everything. Um, and um, so that's all quite technical stuff, but... So it's quite brave of Walmart to take it on, and he devotes quite a lot of space to it. But it's all done very readably. Mm -hmm. And he convinces you that, that BR was doing well at the very moment. And he's he's a well-known writer on railways, isn't he? So is it is it a tale well told? Because you say he's 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 having to go through some fairly dry and counterintuitive stuff. Yes, he's written, I don't know how many, but more than a dozen books about trains, I should think. And he is our leading writer on railways and uh, the interesting thing about this book is it's not like reading the railway magazine which I sometimes do because the railway magazine takes for granted that you will know what a diesel multiple unit is mm. but Walmart tells you so he writes for the layman and it's like his mission is to explain railways to to people who are not train spotters and he likes to decry any romantic uh, attachment to it he does that at the beginning of all his books you know but he obviously was a train spotter um, as a boy, and there's a little rather charming anecdote about how an early enterprise of BR was motor rail, whereby you would put your train, uh, put your car on, onto a train. That sounds practical. Uh, well, it's <laughs> maybe. Well, I suppose it's like the Channel Tunnel, isn't it? Well, it's like what people used to do at the very beginning of railways, because rich people would put their carriages on onto a, mm. onto a flatbed truck and go on trains like that. Um, but uh, Walmart talks about how he went to the the motor rail terminal at Kensington Olympia, I suppose it would have been in the early 60s or late 50s, um, no, mid-60s it would have been, uh, with his dad to watch the cars being loaded onto the trains. Ooh. So he, uh, and at that point he does admit that he had he had been a train spotter. He was sort of hooked at that. And now, I, I know that a lot of this, uh, you know, diesel multiple units wouldn't mean a lot to me, I can't lie, but it's not all like that in this book, is it? I mean, there's, you know, there are stories about, for example, chamber pots. There's lots of colour in it. Um, by the way, a diesel multiple unit, he explains it very nicely, essentially coaches with engines underneath. I once had to explain what oh, okay. a multiple unit was, and I couldn't. I found it very difficult to explain, so he's explained it very neatly there. Now, there's lots of colour in it, and, and, and he talks about an early design of sleeper carriage done by BR, whereby there was... Uh, Mod cons like electric shaver points, but then to get rid of the um, of uh, the uh, night soil, whatever you call it, uh, there was a device where you put the chamber pot into some sort of little cupboard. Then you slammed the cupboard door, and the chamber pot was automatically emptied onto the tracks. That sounds fairly neat. Well, yeah, <laughs> I think it worked. But uh, so it's from nice little details like that. Also, one thing that was I found very compelling was that he identified um, the, the the kind of acrid smell that was on the HST. Uh, these fast streamlined diesels, which I used to spend half my life on going between York and London. And uh, uh, it was it was an acrid smell. And it was to do with the brakes in some way. And some people quite like the smell. Mm. 
Mm. It certainly had a... It, Very evocative. I can imagine that smell right now. It has a, a, it's a sort of Proustian transportation as soon as I, uh, mm. I think of it. There's an awful lot of it goes on, goes on in my family too, because my late father-in-law was a porter, who he was a night porter, uh, who worked away a lot of the time and was did the Penzance run from Paddington, uh, and had a, an extraordinary fund of stories, not least about two very wealthy women who had him up all night one night asking for a cup of teas and cups of tea and hot water bottles and then as the train got back to London he found they had left their bloomers in the and they hadn't given him given him a tip at all I they'd left their bloomers in the carriage and he went up the a platform did he wave them was he waving them in so Madam, you've left your bloomers. He was waving. And <laughs> <laughs> um, you won't ask me for a hot water bottle at three o'clock in the morning again. <laughs> I think trains are trains are very strongly connected to memory um, because because it's inherently a sort of adventure to get on a train. You're a bit discombobulated in various ways. You're a bit anxious. Will you get there on time? Will you miss the train? And then um, you go from one place to another. I think uh, mm. uh, Proust said something to the effect that there's something heartbreaking about any leave taking on a train. You do have that kind of, uh, mm. you do have that sort of stomach churning sensation slightly. I think I once did a book about moquettes, which are is the material seats, train seats, and bus seats are made of, and this um, huge range of these have existed in Britain, and we're particularly good at moquette. We make beautiful maquettes, and you can see them on the London Underground. It's wool, mm. so it's a French word for carpet. And um, that got a strong response, that book, because people would be instantly taken back to the time of their life when they saw that maquette. That particular one. That's what yeah, you yeah. remember about a train carriage, it turns out, is the colour mm. of the piece. Oh, yes. And the smell. Yeah. And the smell. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The London Transport Museum does an absolutely roaring trade in that. I mean, I have one myself in those in those very things. Yeah, it goes on. It goes according to the demographic, and uh, the the popular one uh, has been in recent years. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but it was on the district line in the uh, sort of late seventies, and it's a kind of mustardy colour, and mm. um, and th that that worked because the people who remembered that are now quite. They're Londoners in their middle age with money to spend. So that's, <laughs> that explains why that maquette was very popular. Maybe if you live yeah. on the district line. They lived on the district line, which yeah. is pretty, pretty well. So you're to, yeah, it, goes through, it goes through some nice areas, doesn't it, the district yeah. line? I'm going to end by asking an unrelated, though still train-related question. Um, it's not related to the book, I'm afraid. Um, but I just wanted to ask, what is your favourite train journey? I think uh, that journey that I mentioned from Paris to Nice, um, that's, that's very nice. And I like the train journey from London to York, since that's my sort of standard journey. Although really the, the East Coast Main Line, which is the line you take ship to York, only gets interesting after York. It becomes very beautiful, but there's yeah. certain little signifiers on that line. There's a ruined windmill that you see as you approach York. And that's, to me, very moving and galvanising and... Uh, and that's the there's certain moments on that line when London sort of recedes behind you, and there's a certain junction. I guess, it's near Newark, I think. The train g gives a kind of throb, and I always think, right, London's gone now. <laughs> that's a that's a lovely reminder. Thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us and talking to us today. Thanks. have time for this week our thanks go to lucy hughes hallett and andrew martin and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast and even huger thanks go to sophia franklin and um, because this is her last episode i'm very sorry to say so we we salute sophia and we say thank you and all the best for the future we really do and i have to also say sophia thank you for your patience <laughs> Shall we not say why? We'll just say thank you. Podcasting's most patient <laughs> producer. Uh, so we, we wish you all the best in future endeavours and, gosh, hope that you may one day return to us. 
We'll be back next week, sort of. We'll be joined by Toby Lichtig and we'll be in Hay. Uh, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.